Hey, everybody, this is Brian Johnson of SADC. Hi, this is Chuck Panazzo of Six. Hi, you're listening to Nancy Wilson of Heart. Hi, this is Kenny Loggins. Hi, this is John Wade. Hey, this is Martha Clinton, and if you're listening to this like I am, we're stuck in the 80s. Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the pop culture. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. The lingo. 30 inches of thigh slapping, blood pumping, nuclear brain damage. And the love. Casey, could you please play Waiting for a Girl Like You? Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s, and yeah, we finally get to say this, Stuck in the 80s is officially 15 years old today. Stuck in the 80s is a member of, wait, we're not part of a podcast network anymore. That's not a joke. That is a severe behavioral disorder. But you can still find our podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and via our website at www.sit80s.com. Welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's our brand new podcast on TampaBay.com. I'm Gina Vivanetto, columnist for TBT. Hi, and I'm Steve Spears, the online news editor for SPTimes.com. Um, what are we going to talk about today, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> hey, 80s Nation. Uh, happy birthday. Happy birthday! We've had anniversary shows before, but this one seems a little different. It feels, I don't know, 15 years. It's a different kind of achievement. Maybe because we ourselves turned 15 in the 80s. Yeah, Steve, are you going to get your learner's permit tomorrow? Yep, got the 82 Mustang waiting outside. Oh, yeah, you wish. That'd be sweet. So the podcast has finally gotten through those junior high tween years and is moving into peak surly teenager territory now yeah i like it our our mothers still hate us uh but we're not old enough to uh, catch a ride to the mall by ourselves just yet so we have to tolerate them yeah i I gotta tell you 15 was pretty good 15 was pretty glorious that was back in the day when i was still pretty sure i knew everything well yeah and you didn't have to i didn't have to pay for car insurance or gas because i couldn't really go anywhere so anything I right. pocketed job-wise was just like... It's all profit. Pure, it's all it's yeah. pure profit. Pure gravy, as opposed yeah. to the podcast world. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's still gravy. It's just really thin. It's more like water. Yes. The red eye got out of, a, out of a ditch <laughs> yeah. filled with mosquito larvae. <laughs> Gosh, you're really painting a photo. So, so here's what we got planned for this week. We've talked about this for a few months now, and we didn't we didn't want to like... Do a reunion show, or uh, you know, try to tackle some hugely lofty topic that just—it's just not us. It's just not—it's not, it's not it's, who we are, man. No, and so what we decided to do is we decided to—it's—it's uh, it's mo- mostly Brad picking these, but we decided to pick our favorite interview moments from 15 years of stuck in these history. So we have 15 little interview clips, and we'll tell you the story behind each one. Because Steve is like Gary from Weird Science. He hates compliments. Oh, Gary! Oh, Ma, I never talked soft to anything. You told me you were combing your hair. But 
Let, let me tell you something about doing interviews on the show. And I, I don't know that everyone really understands this. We started doing interviews, I don't know if it was the first year or not, but we started doing them. And for the maybe the first 50 of them, I felt completely nauseous for like two days before every interview. <laughs> no, no matter no matter who it was, I just I felt nauseous. Um, all the all the prep work in the world wouldn't make me feel any better. And then when we actually had the interview, a lot of times I'd sit there stunned like a deer in the headlights. And it took maybe I don't know twenty of them before I finally felt like I knew what I was doing. Yeah, like you had a system, and that I could have fun. And so when people kind of say, oh, you should do interviews with so-and-so or, you know, this or that, I'm like, oh, man, I, 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 I would love the chance to talk with these people. But if you just knew, like, the, the, the physical pain that I go through and, and then the, well, yeah. the stress, too, of is the connection going to be okay? Can we record them? You know, is it going to be scratchy? Are they going right. to hear us? Or are they going to be able to use the computer? You know, they, yeah. You know. It just – I mean well, – <laughs> here's the thing when we do an interview show when when steve does the interview which is the vast majority of them i do a few here and there but he does most of them i'm always like oh great this is gonna be a nice quiet week for me on the podcast front because steve's gonna do the interview and then he's gonna edit it and they'll send it to me and all i have to do is you know show up listen to a few clips do a little blah 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 on the intro do some seggies and we're out so yeah. it's like these shows are awesome and steve is like these shows are awful oh why do you hate me Lighten up, Francis. <laughs> I, I can't stand to listen to my own voice. It's, it's part of it. And and I hear myself How did we ask, make it 15 years? I don't know. I, I don't listen to the shows that much. But what happens, too, is I'm listening to, to me interview somebody, which I can't stand listening to the interview afterwards. And I just sit there and I second-guess the questions. And I'm like, oh, my God, could you sound like a bigger geek? Like, like you thought this was such an interesting yeah. way to start the conversation, but it really sounds pathetic. And so we, we, we cast all that aside. <laughs> so with that glowing setup, we're going to subject you to uh, – what anniversary is this, Steve? Is it 15? 15. Five years longer than a decade. What a coincidence. We have 15 clips. Yeah. We have 15 clips to share with you today from interviews over the years. I think the first one is from 2006, and the last one is from this summer, as far as the most recent and oldest and newest. Yeah. So let's get started. They're in no particular order other than that's how we kind of felt like presenting them to you today. So <laughs> let's take a walk down Amnesia Lane, shall we? In uh, episode 90, we talked to Brian Johnson from ACDC, and it went a little bit like this. Speaking of your legacy, you got to tell us, what was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame experience like? Well, it was good. I enjoyed it. I, uh, we really enjoyed it. I mean, apart from The Edge, who would have you too, making a complete taunt of himself, uh, <laughs> it was good. What did he do? What did he do? Oh, well, we were on stage, we had to sing, you know, we got ready, the priest said, let's go, and everybody had to go up, and you had to make a speech, and he was inducting the clash, you know, who were all love, you know, everybody loves him. And uh, and we're standing there, and the preacher says, and he kept on, he, he talked for 25 minutes. Uh, and uh, it was, it was oh, and at the end, we're coming up behind us going, hey, book it off. <laughs> Get off. Those guys from you too, they don't want to shut up. Yeah, but no, those puppies are so far up their own asses, it's just impossible to talk to them. They cannot hear you. 
that up right up the heads right up amongst yeah. the intestinal parts of the body. But yeah. hey, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> that people might think they're the sweetest guys on the planet. Yeah, but uh, I just, you know, it was just uh, it was disrespectful and it was dumb and yeah. uh, and it just like the sound of his own voice. I mean, the poor producer there, the TV, he's gone, God almighty, how do I get this guy off? Well, at least it was the edge and it wasn't Bono. If it had been Bono, he'd be up there for about an hour and he's a half. He's still talking now. Yeah, I, I, I know, my son. And, and, but that, that was a lovely story. And, and, you know, when he was up in Glasgow, I'm sure everybody's heard it now, when he clapped his hand, he was clapping his hand, like, you know, bang. Yeah. And he said, every time I clap my hand, a child in Africa dies. And a kid at the front said, well, stop clapping your hands, you cruel <laughs> bastard. Brian Johnson was great, and he was one of the first interviews that we really felt like we connected, and he told us great stories. I remember as soon as it was over, I, I collapsed on the floor and rolled around like a five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and Well, this is where we learned that Steve really doesn't like you, too. Because you guys got right on board with this. Oh, those guys are total wankers. You're like, you bet they are. Yeah, I don't like those guys. <laughs> Brian Johnson was promoting the John Entwistle Foundation. Uh, the former bass player for the Who had died, and but he left behind a you know charitable organization. And they were playing a show in Clearwater, Florida, which is about where I was living in. And so he was doing press, and so we got to do the interview, and we also got to hang out with him backstage. So. Me, Brian Johnson, there was Wade Boggs was there. Um, Eddie Money was there. Who else was there? Wow. Uh, um, John Gruden, who was then the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, was there. I know Wade Boggs took one of my beers. I had a six-pack of beer, and he took uh, one. And he and I Boxy, talked. come on. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was I'm a sure great. Daly had a in his pants talking to Wade Boggs. He wouldn't talk to him. He was he was too afraid to talk to him. And so I was like, I'll go up and talk to Wade Boggs. I don't I don't have any hero complex with him. So we had a nice conversation. And it was just it was just one of those surreal nights that makes you really thank God that once upon a time you decided to start a podcast. So this might have been the first moment where I just really felt like, you know, thing I was Well, blessed. and yeah, episode 90, that was a that was a big get. I mean, that's a huge star. It was. It was a big star. So, Brian Johnson. And what's really great, if by the way, if you're following us on Facebook, you might notice that ACDC is celebrating the 40th anniversary of Back in Black right now. And they're releasing a video series. And they're, they're real short. They're huh. like three minutes long. And they tell the story of each of the songs from the album. Oh, nice. So, check it out. I think they release one every few days, maybe once a week. Which leads us in no way... To the number two interview on our list. Good story to tell you about this one when it's over. This is our interview from in 2010 with Howard Jones from episode 213. I have one question about that album. Yeah. I know you won't play it. I yeah. know a lot of people who, who read our yeah. newspaper and, and listen to, to my podcast will, will buy yeah. it. The, the song um, Soon You'll Go, which I know yeah. you wrote. You wrote that for your daughter as she was leaving for college. I don't have any kids yeah. myself, and yet when I listen to it, I—I I mean, it's—it's it's pretty moving, even for me. Um, well, it—it's it, just—I think that everyone can relate to that song because, it's, you know, it, it's not just about that specific circumstances of, of your maybe children that you may or may not have, but it's just somebody or someone leaving your life in some way, and that can be through through death or through just circumstances or people moving on. And I, I just think that the song does 
I mean, what it does for me is it, it, it just reminds me that I need to really, you know, cherish the moments that I have with people because, you know, maybe ne next week they won't be with you or they'll have to leave or something. So we really must um, make the most of the time that we have with each other. Um, and so that's, I suppose, is the universal um, idea of the song. Soon you'll go, you'll make your mark. Soon you'll go, taking my heart. Soon you'll soar into the sky, and I'll be there to watch you fly. What was your uh, daughter's reaction when she heard it? Oh, well, when I played it to her, we were both bawling our eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's, that's uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, that's why, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't play it very often because it has such a devastating reaction <laughs> on, on my audiences. And I don't really want to have them, you know, blubbering. Um, in the, you know, I, I mean, I think it's, it's just, feels like cruel to play the song sometimes you're making me cry again steve every time every time i hear that story <laughs> this is a great story soon you'll go is is obviously not one of his classic 80s tunes but it's it was a song that he released on the album that he was touring on only to learn when i talked to him that yeah it's his most recent album but he was doing a greatest hits tour so he didn't even play it that yeah. show i used to taunt brad afterwards because about it was about that time your kids were going to college, right? Or, or well, when my kids were starting to go off to college, then you would send me this link all the time. <laughs> and I'm telling you, so I'm like I said, I was going through like trying to find the stories that we'd use and listening to all these interviews, which was a lot of fun. But I've been doing it while I've been going for a run because I don't drive anymore anymore. So I'm like, you know, run along, and he starts talking, and I'm like, <laughs> stop for a minute, like get your shit together, man, come on. That was one of the first conversations where I kind of felt like I knew what I was doing. And it only took me five years to get there. And the nice thing was, after that show, he came out to talk to the people who were still sticking around. And so he and I chatted for about five minutes more about just life in general. And it was just, it was, he was just such a genuine, nice guy. And if you ever get a chance to, to see him live, stick around afterwards, because he almost always makes a point of coming out and, and meeting the fans. Oh, that's nice. Uh, speaking of someone else who really loves to talk to the fans, the, the number three interview in our countdown, this is one of Brad's favorites, and I made him put this on the list. This is Terry Nunn from Berlin talking to us uh, live in person on the 2020 voyage of the 80s cruise. So we do a thing on the podcast called the Podcast Time Machine. If we were to build such a time machine, we would give you a seat on this time machine and you could go back. What would you use that seat to either go back and change or go back and see? Where would you go in time and, and for what purpose? I thought of music stuff, but honestly, I would go back to the last time I saw my dad because I didn't know it was the last time I was going to see him and hug him and tell him I'm sorry. And I love him. That would mean a lot to me. Wow, today on Terry Nunn Makes Brad Cry. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was, I asked the question. Whew. Oh my gosh, Steve. I have told so many people that I went to high school with, many of whom are like, how do you listen to a podcast again? I'm not sure how this works. <laughs> do I do that on my phone or do I get it on the, is, is there on a turntable or do I turn on the AM radio? <laughs> Nobody says that. But, <laughs> well, it's pretty close. But uh, when I tell people, dude, seriously, I helped, I don't say I interviewed, but I helped interview Berlin and Terry Nunn sat right next to me. And she looked at me like she cared about what I was saying. It was amazing. <laughs> so not to make it about me, because it isn't about me, but you know, that's a question we've been asking on the podcast of people for some time. And people generally have taken it pretty lightheartedly. Oh, I'd go back and, you know, tell that guy off, or I'd go to a concert that I, you know, I forgot I had tickets to, or, you know, something like that. But Terry, man, she just went right into the let me make the entire room cry by talking about her dad. <laughs> and that was like the theme for that cruise. Everybody we asked that question went to some really like emotionally heavy answer like, oh, I just wish I'd had one more time to play catch with my dog before I had to go. And put I'm like, oh, my gosh, people, tell me about going to a concert or something fun. Yeah. Have you ever thought about the answer to that question? Like if I asked you the time – you know the time capsule podcast time machine question. What would what's the first thought that comes to your mind? Um, well, I'm gonna. You, she's further down the list, but Nina had the right answer for that one. She's like, "Oh, I have some stories, but I'm not going to share them with you." <laughs> Guys, this is scientifically possible. Oh my god! Okay, Professor Hawking, tell me in your robot voice how this is scientifically possible. It is obviously a podcast time machine. Sorry, guys. At heart, believe it or not, I'm a fairly private person. But, uh, oh, yeah, no, I mean, I think we all have, well, maybe not. Maybe there are truly people who live life with no regrets. But there are things that I would go back and do differently. Uh, you know, actually, yeah, I can think of several things. But <laughs> the answer that I always give is, I don't want to screw this up. So if there's a chance that I go back and change something and, you know, butterfly effect, whatever crap happens, like, I don't want to tinker with that because I got it pretty good right now. Yeah, I mean, I would have to have a guarantee that whatever I did in the past doesn't affect my present because I'm I'm pretty happy. Over the course of 15 years of the podcast, I think everyone's seen all the the down moments for me. <laughs> the many moods of Spearsy. Yeah, most of them dark, but I'm in a really great place now, and I'm engaged, and we have a a, new, a wedding date set, and it's like it's it's really hard to to be down right now. So I don't really want to tinker with the past all that much. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. Little hear things, you. little things like I would have ordered the lobster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like maybe don't... get a Milky Way instead of a Snickers. Well, no, no yeah. one would ever do that. That's crazy. Yeah. Speaking of crazy, we had an opportunity in 2009. This and this was so out of left field, but we had a chance to talk to Carl Weathers. Yes, Carl Weathers, Apollo Creed from, <laughs> from Rocky. It was a fun, fun once-in-a-lifetime moment, and in it, he shared what his favorite memory was being on uh, on set. You, you, you mentioned Rocky, and I've always... I mean, you, you appear in the first uh, four Rocky movies. Is Do you have a personal favorite moment from those films? Well, that's a good question. Well, I mean, first of all, the first Rocky was just, you know, it was just... It was what it was, man. It was... Uh, Sort of the genesis of, of, of a career that's lasted for a long time, you know, even though I'd done work before that, that was the thing that sort of 
put me in people's minds uh, and in front of people in a particular way. Um, I don't know about a favorite moment. I, I, I think of all, all the things that are memorable for me was in Rocky Four being on the same stage with uh, James Brown. Yes. Uh, growing up America. as a kid, you know, growing up as a kid and, and an icon like James Brown and then to actually wind up on the stage with him. I mean, that's, man, that's how many people, you know, can say that one of an American icon you shared the stage with and had a great time uh, being on stage with him. So that was a special moment. I know Sean and I have our favorite moment, and that's the end of Rocky Three, with the uh, the bout between you and Stallone, where no one's there to watch, mm. and you kick it off with the old ding 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 ding. Yep, awesome. Hey, uh, going back to the James Brown thing, do you still have your uh, your patriotic shorts? They let you I keep do those? have my patriotic shorts. How could I lose them, man? No way. No <laughs> way can I lose the patriotic shorts. Brad, that's about as good of an answer as we ever get. Oh, my gosh. And this, that interview, that's a fun show to go back to. It's uh, episode 183, and he just he couldn't have been looser. He's just so happy <laughs> to talk to you guys. And, you know, every question you ask, it's like, oh, that's a great question. It gives you a good answer. And he was very engaged. It's a lot of fun. He's a good guy. He, I remember when he brought up Force 10 from Navarone, and I just – I don't know if I squealed, but in my in my memory of it, I squeal because Force 10 from Navarone is one of my favorite late 70s war movies. And he said, oh, I was with – I acted with, with Richard Keel before, Richard Keel being better known as Jaws from the James Bond movies. Right. And, and yeah, and you jump right in. You're like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I have it. I've seen it. I have it on DVD. <laughs> oh, man. Carl Weathers. Special story here before we – Announced number five. Okay, number five is Dennis DeYoung. I'll oh, tell you that. Thanks right for the teaser. But here's the interesting story, and I think we've told the story before. But it, if you haven't heard it, it bears repeating. I had a couple chances to talk to Dennis DeYoung over the history of stuck in the eighties, and I chose not to do it because people who had met him told me that he could be a little, uh, you know, not 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 the not the friendliest guy. And so I was I was a little afraid of him. And sure. He came through Clearwater, which Tampa Bay, Ruth Eckerd Hall, everyone knows the stories about that now where I used to live there. He came through and he was performing there and Night Ranger opened for him. And I chose to interview Night Ranger instead of Dennis DeYoung, <laughs> which was a great interview. Jack Blades is amazing. And if you get a chance, go oh, back yeah. and listen to the Jack Blades interview. It's it's fun. So I'm backstage afterwards because a lot of times I got to go backstage to concerts in well, those yeah, days. You, you probably the whole staff knew you by sight. Oh, it's Steve Spears. I, I do, Star I stage that, and screen. Come on in, Steve. I knew the security code to the door to, to get backstage. Oh, and I introduced Night Ranger on stage that night. So I was backstage after That's the so show. That's so cool. That's so cool. The president of Ruth Eckert Hall goes, do you, would you like to meet Dennis? I'm like, oh, yeah. I, well, you know, if he's in a good mood, sure, yeah, I'll t- so he brings me over to Dennis and he goes, hey, Dennis, this is Steve Spears from the St. Pete Times. 
He's like, oh, you know, nice to meet you. You, you remember the press, so you might have a, you probably have a question for me. And I'm like, uh, you know, I was not prepared to, to ask a question, but I said, um, well, you know, now that you mention it, you know, I loved your set, but how come you didn't play, you know, Desert Moon? And it, the smile fell from his face, and he pointed to the guy next to me, the president of the hall, and said, because this son of a bitch booked Night Ranger to open for me, cutting my time on stage. And I'm like, <gasps> my face turns white. And he goes, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And I, oh. Um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, you know, a little ball busting. Steve could use it, you know? Yeah, yeah. A couple years later, he was coming through town. And he was doing another full show. And he was, he was with the, the symphony. And we're going to get to his interview here in a second. But I just love this story so much. And when the interview started, if you go back to episode 257 in 2012, I mentioned that story to him about him saying that to me. And he was so sorry. <laughs> He's like, I really said that to you? I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, no, no. It's one of my favorite stories I tell everybody. Yeah. He's like, okay, okay. You know, I, would, I just yeah, I feel bad. He and I talked for, I think, about an hour and a half. And only 40 minutes of it was recorded. The rest of it was completely off the record. And it was amazing and life-changing and life-affirming. And, you know, I believe in... <laughs> Just about everything you can believe in after being able to talk to, to Dennis DeYoung for 90 minutes. But at one point I asked him, hey, what would you do differently if uh, if you could re-record Killer It Was Here Now, the, the album that caused so much strife in the band? And and this is what he said. Let me take you to, um, if you have time, I want to talk about Kilroy for a second. It, that was one of the, that was probably the first concert I was ever allowed to drive to go see on my own. So it's always got a special place in my heart. And I kept the concert shirt until my uh, washer finally digested it. But if you could go back to that record and that tour, uh, would you do anything differently? No, knowing how that, knowing kind of the, the series of events that would follow Kilroy, what would you go back and do anything differently? Uh... I'd have had that the Roboto mask made larger because it didn't fit well on my face. <laughs> You're wondering who I am. Machine or mannequin. I think, yeah, I think, look, I can go back, I can tell you that I would listen to Come Sail Away and change things. That's just human nature. You know, rarely will an artist look at what he's done, no matter how much it's appreciated and respected, and not believe in their heart that they couldn't, they couldn't have made it better. Here is um, the fundamental problem with Kilroy. More than any song about a robot, more than um, my encouragement and almost insistence that we try to act on stage a little bit and tell a story in a real dramatic setting, more than any of that, what, what the, the greatest failing of Kilroy is, it, is, and I've said this before, but not it, it crystallizes it, it, the older you get, is I needed Renegade on that album. There, when I listen to that record, I realize the really, the, the, worst, the worst thing about that record is 
My premise being that being censored to the point of putting rock stars in jail. This is my pre- this is my premise, correct? Right. Encapsulated the spirit of true rock music. There isn't a blue collar man, a rock in the paradise, a renegade. You see what I'm saying? A midnight ride, a Miss America, that straight ahead balls out. You know what I mean? Had I to do it again, I would, you know, but the truth of the matter is nobody brought those songs in. Even J.Y.'s contribution, which is heavy metal poisoning, was. Good, but not. I don't great. mean not good or bad. Forget about that. That's another. That's a, that's that's a whole other thing. I'm talking about it. Essence was not. I mean, you can't compare Midnight Gy's Midnight Rider, Miss America, with Heavy Metal Poisoning. Forget the lyric. Okay, the music itself wasn't as hard rocking as some of the things he had done. Sorry, the lead up to that story was probably better than the story itself. <laughs> oh, nonsense. I'm sorry. I just, I really... We're just having some fun. I'd forgotten that story, Steve. That's funny. Yeah. It's just one of my favorites from that time. He's he's such a good guy, and I kept trying to say, let's write, like, don't you want to tell your story? Let's write a book. Let's write a book. And he's just like, oh, I really want... He's, he's, he's under so many, I think, non-disclosure orders as part of his deal with sticks that... Yeah. The guy probably has, he has a mountain of things he wants to say, he just can't say them, so... Yeah, it's like when you get the you know you get the stuff from the Freedom of Information Act and like the whole page is blacked out except for the word <laughs> the six places like yeah. that's the book. I swear to God, that's the longest story I'm going to tell you today. So so Brad, why don't you continue the countdown because we have like five billion more to go. Okay, uh, the sixth one on our list today is from June 2013, episode 287. Steve and I talked to Nina Blackwood, and she talked a little bit about the song "Missing You." You mentioned specifically stories that, you know, pre-MTV that only a few people knew. Can, can you give us an example of a story in particular from the book that, that nobody really knew about, that you knew you'd have to relive it, and, and, and something you really wouldn't have rather not revisited? Well, you know, um, a little bit with uh, the story, not pre-MTV, but um, uh, a little bit with the story pertaining to uh, John Waite. And, um, uh, you know, in the Missing You thing, that was a really, really special, uh, and, and it still is. I mean, we we're in, you know, still in uh, communication via, <clears throat> you know, email and stuff like that. So I probably, you know, I, I, you know, I, I know it's a story that was part and parcel, but then on the other hand, I couldn't not talk about John because he was very much a part of uh, my time at MTV. When I think of my my life in New York and the MTV days, John is the person I think about, you know? I mean, he was part of it. He was very much a part of of that, so I couldn't not tell that. And then um, the other thing was after MTV and... um, you know, uh, the marriage part and what happened with, with them. I still can't say the D word. I really can't. That was really traumatic. And really, um, as you, you know, in the book, it really, uh, you know, really fed into, you know, me 
ultimately almost committing suicide. You know, so though that in particular, more so than John, uh, because some people did. I made the mistake of telling Mark about it and <laughs> about the missing you thing. It's like, oh, why'd I do that? You know, I'll never hear the end of it. That's a great story. That's one of my favorites. That was a good interview. You and her really bonded. It's a great story, and you can tell it's it's raw and it's hard for her to talk about it. Yeah. And I mean, I, it's you know that makes us the emotional vampires that we are, I guess. But it's good radio, and she could not have been nicer. If you go back and listen to that, that was the first interview I participated in on this show, and that's not why I picked it. You know, it just I just kind of happened to stumble across that fact. But she could not have been nicer. And sure. when I would kind of botch a question, she would say, "Oh, can you give that to me again?" And like have <laughs> me do a fresh take without saying, "Do it again, idiot! I'm a professional. Let me show you how to use a microphone." I forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> she was great. She's always on the '80s cruise. And by the way, we're we're going to talk about it more on another show, but. It was just announced this week that the 2021 voyage of the 80s cruise has been postponed to 2022. This run should be postponed until this platoon is better rested. Same exact lineup. It'll be in March of 2022. It's still on Royal Caribbean. It's now sailing out of Port Canaveral. Nina will be there. So will Alan. So will Mark. So will Brad and me. But we'll tell you more about it next show. In the meantime, let's take you to 2014. This is one of those... When I first started the podcast, I used to talk about oh bucket list interviews, and I was like, well, you know why, you know why can't I talk to the Thompson twins? I would love to talk to the Thompson twins. Of course, the Thompson twins have been broken up forever by that point, right? But yeah, but Tom Bailey got back into the music biz in 2014 with the Retro Futura tour, <laughs> which I still can't say six years later. And we're um, so sorry they're not touring anymore because we can't say it. Yeah, so I asked him about his comeback attempt, and and this was this unlikely story that we got. What's your personal expectation for this tour? I mean, what what is it that you hope to feel or accomplish um, by playing these songs again? Well, in a way, I've already mm, discovered that re-engaging with the songs was a more powerful and satisfactory thing that I, than I ever expected it to be. So the validity of them is um, is absolute for me. I've only chosen the ones that I felt I could inhabit or re-inhabit successfully 100 percent you know i don't want to do this half-heartedly i think any anyone in my position would fear just being a kind of half-hearted parody of the past you know and in some kind of crazy karaoke sense go out and just go through the motions i absolutely can't do that give me an example of a song that you found uh, a new or different meaning in um, there was a song called "If You Were Here," which was never uh, released as a single, but it was it was popular because it was in a film. Uh, 16, it's at the very end of Sixteen Candles. Everyone that's has right. That. Yeah, yeah. So everyone loves people, that song. The, people do like that song, and I like it too. And it was one of my favorites. I thought it kind of touched upon something, uh, a kind of raw nerve in me, and um, I thought it was really about the question of honesty in personal relationships. But going back to back to it, it really struck me very, very powerfully. It was also about reassessing the honesty of our, you know, 30 years ago. We had this optimism that the world was going to be a better place, and, and yet I felt that we hadn't fully delivered 
I'm not just talking about the Thompson twins. I'm talking about <laughs> the human race. Right. No, I agree. Uh, um, but we haven't fully delivered on that optimism. There's still an awful lot to be done. You know? And so I've actually written two more verses to more fully emphasize that feeling that I got from the song. That it was about questioning um, our unfinished business as responsible people. I'm I'm really curious about the the process here because when you went back, did you remember these songs word for word? Did you have to relearn them? I assumed that I'd forgotten them so completely. I didn't own copies of many of them. I had to go into a music store and buy a Thompson Twins Greatest Hits compilation <laughs> because I'd so so long kind of lost touch with them. I didn't even own them anymore, and. That kind of felt curious and amusing. But then I, it's a bit like riding a bike. You know, I played them and I thought, oh, yeah, I remember this. There are certain things that um, were a bit tricky. Most of, most of the things came back very quickly. And what was more amazing was I could remember the individual kind of musical components. Um, partly because I did play most of it <laughs> myself. So it's kind of locked in my memory somehow. It just needed an excuse to be uh, to be allowed out again. I love that story. I just love that story. <laughs> Even I don't have a copy of the Greatest Hits CD, but Tom Bailey does. I, neither do I. But to admit that, like, oh, I don't remember my own songs. It's hilarious. It was a great interview. He was so nice and. Gosh, and his, he hasn't lost a thing. I mean, I remember seeing him on stage. I just thought I was expecting the worst. There's no way you can leave the music business for like 20 or 30 years and come back and sound just the and same. And then hop back he, on. He did. He does. After you admit you forgot your own songs. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. I took my son to see that Retro Futura tour, and I remember at the end of his set, I was just like, oh, if Spearsy was here right now, we would just be in a puddle of tears. Yeah. <laughs> it, was just, it was way better than it had any right to be. <laughs> So here's okay. Another unlikely story is coming up next. In 2008, Debbie Gibson was touring Florida, not on a concert tour. I think she was promoting a series of music camps or something like that, or some sort of yeah. program. And she was in Tampa Bay, and they're like, "We would love to come by and let you talk to Debbie." And I'm like, "Really? In person?" And it just, <laughs> like, it just. <laughs> have you seen pictures of us? Because we're total reject. <laughs> So she came in, and it was, it was surreal times a hundred. And uh, so, in episode one twenty two, I I found the courage to ask this question. You know, you were Miss Squeaky Clean, whether whether you wanted to be or not. Mm-hmm. But in two thousand and five, mm-hmm. you did something that kind of threw people for a loop. Uh huh. You appeared in Playboy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, you appeared in Playboy? I was I've like, never heard such a thing. I was torturing you, making you get the words out. You like that? Yeah. I was I like, did. uh-huh, uh-huh. That gee, was I wonder- really uncomfortable. Gee, I, I wonder. I was going to explain. And that's part of why I did it, because it's so fun to me. It's funny to watch. Other- it's funny for me to watch other people squirm when I was so comfortable with it. So, anyway. You got to tell us yeah. how that came about. Well, they, ca- I mean, I got that call at 18, 22, 25, like 28, 30. Um I got, actually, my, I got mine at 36. They called me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I shot them down. I wasn't ready. <laughs> Offer wasn't good enough. <laughs> no, I wasn't. 
No, well, they when they called in, they called in like ninety eight or ninety nine. At that time, I was actually playing uh, Gypsy in, in Gypsy, Gypsy Rose Lee, who was like a burlesque queen. And the timing of that was very interesting because I was suddenly on stage having to really come to terms with being at home with my sexuality. It was like a very in your face kind of role. And at that time, I said, you know what, I I would totally be into doing it if you do like a theatrical stylized type thing that fits the show I'm doing now. And they were kind of like, eh, theatrical stylized Playboy readers, not so much. So then they came back to me in 2005 and and actually referred back to that conversation and said, yeah, you know what, our magazine has progressed to that at this point. It is more artistic you can do kind of a more glam stylized thing you can like show as much or as little as you want do whatever you want you have total approval and freedom over everything and and i just went you know what why not um did you, know, you go full monty in that did you go do the whole shebang no i came up with eight thousand creative ways of creating g-strings <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh this necklace would make a great g-string <laughs> um so yeah i kind of you know as I put it, it's like boobs and booty day on South Beach. You know, not for me actually. But I would I would sooner it? do it in a photo shoot than on South Beach. That's the funny thing. Um, I did have fun doing it. Awkward. Uh, not my best moment. Oh, it's so great! It's so great how she like she knows what you're asking, and she's like, "I'm not going to help you at all with this. I'm going <laughs> to let you struggle to get the question out." What's funny was I guess word got out in the building that Debbie Gibson was there. And so a bunch of people, probably a little a little younger than me, because Debbie Gibson came in the sure. late 80s, they had organized a fake meeting in the conference room right outside the <laughs> podcast studio. <laughs> so we came out of the studio. Oh, we just happened to be breaking up. We came out of the studio, and there's like these 13 people, none of whom have anything in common, <laughs> would never be in a meeting together. And they're like, oh... There's Debbie Gibson. Oh, hello, Debbie Gibson. We're you know, Steve's fellow employees. I was like, I just happened to be here. I'm Steve's best friend. Did you like Steve? Because I'm his best friend. Yes. I thought that was cute. And then later in the hallway, I was passing someone who never talks to me. Or he didn't never talk to me, but he, like we weren't best buds or anything. And he stopped me and goes, right. you are a god. <laughs> so, I, I, Well, I got, yeah, I mean, how else do you think you get through 15 years of podcasting? Yeah. Without a little yeah. divine intervention. Yeah. Speaking of divine intervention, the number nine moment was, it was I, guess, I think this is the earliest interview that we're going to talk about today from 2006. So, yes, it was. So, like, we'd been podcasting for just over a year, and we reached out to Stan Ridgway, the front man for Wall of Voodoo, who he was just, he's one of those kind of artists who actually has his contact email on his webpage. So, yeah, in those please days, reach out to me. Yeah. So in those days, I mean, it was hard for us unless you were performing in Tampa Bay and I had a venue that was willing to do the work for me. Right. It was hard to get anyone on the phone, especially if they didn't have anything to promote. Promote. Stan didn't, but he talked to us anyway. And a lot of people, from what I understand, a lot of longtime listeners found out about the podcast through this interview. So here's Stan Ridway talking about the origins of uh, Walla Voodoo's Mexican radio. Yeah, it's funny because Mexican radio wasn't really a top 40 hit at the time. But when you when we ask um, fans of the 80s to name some of the more definitive tunes from the decade, it's usually – Mexican radio is usually the first – one of the first three songs that comes out of their mouth. Well, it still seems to have 
some resonance. I, I, I still sing it uh, in, in the show every now and then when I feel like it. I was going to say, you, do, you and, still uh, enjoy, do you still enjoy performing it? Or oh, is it- oh, yeah, sure. You know, the, the song really is, is, is – the germ of the song came from Mark Moreland, uh, who's uh, recently passed away yeah. three or four years ago yeah. um, from uh, liver disease, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. And so. um, Mark ha- came in one day with this, this phrase that, that – well, we would go to rehearsal a lot and sit in the car and drive to rehearsal, and we would try and find, you know, a, a Mexican radio station on our AM dial there in my old 67 Mustang. And when we would find one, we would say, hey, great, we're on a Mexican radio. <laughs> and so um, we used to like to listen to the sound of something we didn't understand. And also, as the song developed, it became kind of, at least to me, I think for, for Mark, Mark had, had the lick and he had, I'm on a Mexican radio, kind of mumbled into a cassette. And when I heard that, I, I suddenly thought that, you know, this wasn't just a Mexican radio. It kind of harkened back to the 50s for me, when um, rock and roll was prohibited in the United States. And disc jockeys like Wolfman Jack, you know, uh, were across the border, just south of Los Angeles, playing kind of outlaw music, you know, on AM dials, Mexican radio stations that were out of reach, of the FCC, yeah, uh, but with enough wattage, you know, hundred thousand watts or something, to broadcast in North America, you know, in the middle of the night, and flying across and, and stuff. So the song's genesis was like that, and so as it developed, you know, we 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 all threw in our two bits. Uh, you know, Joe added his great percussion to it, and um, uh, you know, uh, 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 we found other sounds to place into it. And, and uh, Richard Mazda was a producer that showed up from England to help us with our second full-length record, which was Call of the West. And that was the first song that we recorded, and we, record, we uh, re- recorded it in a, just a weekend. And that was it. The uh, video is probably just as famous as the song is. When MTV started up, I said to myself, I said, well, this is an opportunity to get something like a film up there, you know, instead of just us on a blue screen or or some picture of an egg frying or something, you know, know, we could actually make a a film. And Mm -hmm. now the end of the video is really an amalgamation of a lot of ideas that were uh, tried out or sketched out for a song called Factory that's on the Call of the West record. On Factory, it was my desire to masquerade as a meatloaf uh, in the end of the tune if we were going to do a video for that, Uh, a little bit like the old Lewis Carroll uh, Alice in Wonderland movie where, uh, if you remember the way Humpty Dumpty looked as W.C. Fields and this kind of uh, face within a mask, you know. Yeah. So I, I really wanted to build some sort of meatloaf, and at the end, the the uh, wife in in character in the song Factory would open the stove, and I would sing some of that from this meatloaf face. <laughs> well, we didn't do Factory, but I still had a desire to be some sort of food, <laughs> and um. So we, we quickly wrangled up this idea that we'd get a big salad bowl and cut a hole in the bottom of it and get a lot of beans, and then I would come up through the beans at the end of the song and sing that Mexican radio line there and, and hopefully, you know, scare the pants off everybody. But <laughs> I, actually, I, I actually scared my own pants off because it was such a, a mess. I had to kind of get down to my skivvies there and, and uh, come up through that bean uh, hole there with the salad thing because... Um, it was all leaking down at the same time, and I was breathing with a straw for about five minutes. Oh, and, um, no. Yeah, it was a little bit like scuba diving. You know? <laughs> exactly. Except but, in uh, baked beans. 
nice guy. Really nice guy. You, you basically cold called him? You just like dropped him an email? Hey, we'd love to have you on the podcast? Yeah, yeah. And he wrote right back and said, hey, sure. Nicest guy. Nicest guy. This is a really fun conversational interview. He's just kind of a normal guy. If it weren't for Stan and that interview, I don't know how many more interviews we would have done. Because to be honest, we were so intimidated by the prospect of interviewing these people who we worshipped. And... Stan was the was one of the first. He wasn't the very first. One of the first three, anyway. And he just made it so fun. That's when we caught the bug, and we were like, "Okay, we can do more of these." And now Steve is so confident in this process that he can call <laughs> me dad when I'm freaking out before interviews because I'm the one who's like, "Oh my god, we're talking to Martha Quinn. Oh my god, we're talking to Nina Black. Oh my god." <laughs> You're I, like, I still, Brad, yeah. it's okay. You just you never know. You never know who's going to be a great interview and who's going to be kind of a dud. We're we're obviously not going to talk about any of the duds that today. Number ten on our journey through fifteen interviews. You're all waiting for the commercial break right now, aren't you? You're not going to get one because, like I said, we're not no longer part of a podcast network. So right now we don't have any commercials. We're freelancing. <laughs> we'll talk to you about more of that about that in a few minutes. Number ten was also kind of a cold call. Hmm. Loverboy had just produced an album that come out and it was a lot of the songs that they'd sort of completed over the years but never put on albums so it's kind of like a whole collection of b-sides and Mike Reno the front man was available for, for interviews right I don't know if he was available but I asked and they said sure so in 2014 on episode 321 Mike Reno spinned story after story after story. And if you're going to go back and listen to oh my gosh. a show from so start fun. to finish. yeah. But what's really interesting is if you remember MTV in the early days, they used to have the MTV contests. And one of the contests was if you won, you got to be in a Loverboy video. Mike Reno here explains what happened to the winner, uh, that MTV contest. <laughs> I, I remember back in uh, 83 – uh, you know, back then MTV was infamous for their contests, and I, I used to enter them all. You know, like you win like a a pink house from John, you know, John Cougar at that time. Right. But in but in '83, you uh, there was a Loverboy one where if you won it, you got to appear in the video for Queen of the Broken Hearts. Oh, I remember that. And uh, hardcore fans still know that if you look at the video at about the 15 second mark, you see the woman who won the. Award. She's sitting behind some computer monitors or something like that. Right. But to this day, that is still my all-time favorite Loverboy video. Oh, thank you. You were born with it, and now you got it the way you want it. And you don't care, because nothing's going to bring you down. You were born with it, and now you got it. And who you bought it. And you don't care. You know the, the backstory to that? No, I'd love to hear it. She is actually the mother of the girl who won. The girl who won was so freaked out she never even showed up to get to get flown in to uh, the Mojave Desert photo shoot, uh, a video shoot. So the mother went, and they limoed her out to the desert. And on the way out there, she got so drunk from all the liquor that was in the limo that she wouldn't get out of the limo. <laughs> so finally, they almost crowbarred her out of that limo, 
and put her on in a scene, just somewhere, because she had to be in the scene that was part of the contest. And she just didn't even want to do it. It was like she was just, so we, they sat her down and they just filmed her as she was kind of trying to get up, get back into the limo, because she didn't want to be any part of it. So, and that's the, that's the backstory there. That's funny, huh? Isn't that a great story? <sighs> that's a rock and roll story right there. <laughs> that is a rock and roll story. I still, I love that oh, video, yeah. and I watch it, and I, I, for like 0.5 seconds, you get to see the mother of the winner, <laughs> you know, behind a control panel. That's so funny. So, Brad, if you could, if you could put yourself like you, you know, you had the power. Like the podcast time machine can be used only specifically to to insert yourself into a video from the eighties. Okay. What what video would you pick? Whip it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I kind of figured that was gonna be your answer. Okay, now if you say, and it can't be a Devo video, then. Gosh. No, no, it could be whatever you want it to be. I don't know. Why? why uh, no, well, I mean, that's the obvious answer, but like, you know, maybe sometimes what's more interesting is the next answer. But what's yours, Steve? What would you be inserted into? I thought it might be fun to go through all the makeup process and thriller and be one of the monsters. Oh yeah, but then I'd have idea. to learn how to dance, which we all know. Uh, the podcast time dance. machine can grant <laughs> it can grant many things, and it might even give you rhythm. It'd be fun to be in. Take on me, aha, uh-huh, and have like a comic book. Yeah. As long as I got to be the guy holding the wrench, the pipe wrench. <laughs> <laughs> I'd sell it for a cartoon. Maybe you could go back and be uh you could go back and be Max Headroom in Paranomia. Yeah. There's, there's so many options. I seriously I could I could do a whole top eighty list of that alone. Oh, show idea. <laughs> for number eleven, we, we can't talk about our interviews without talking about Martha Quinn. Mar- Martha Quinn's been on the show three times now and I mean, she has an open invitation to be on the show whenever she wants to be. In 2007 was the first time we talked to her. And I got to admit, we had high hopes because we hoped, we prayed that she was one-tenth of the version she seemed to be on MTV. When in reality, she's like 10 parts of that same person. I mean, she's just, she is Martha Quinn. One thousand percent Martha Quinn. She's not occupying a character. She is that person. That you want her to be, which is fantastic. Yeah. I have her phone number in my phone, so I can call her. But I, I, The reason you have that number is because you don't abuse it, Steve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with great power becomes great responsibility. The challenge with talking to someone like Martha Quinn, who's been interviewed a thousand times or ten thousand times, ask a question she hasn't heard before, or at least put a spin on a question she's heard a thousand times. Right. So that was my challenge. This is how I chose to tackle it. I got to ask you, you know, when MTV started 25 years ago, I guess it was 26 years ago next month, do you think anybody at the network or even among that first group of VJs could foresee that you would really become the, the face of, of, M- of the network and really the decade? God, that's an, um, you know what? I've got to congratulate you because you are the first person to ever ask that question where I thought that you were going to go was – did you foresee that MTV would last this long, which I've heard a million times. No. <laughs> but this is a very interesting take, and may I say I like it. All right. We're off um, to a good start here. Good job, Steve. Yeah, I'm going to pass like out it. now. <laughs> God, did they foresee that I would become the face? You know, it's funny. I, I will say that every once in a while I'll read an article, and if they're talking about the 80s, I've actually seen them referred to as the Martha Quinn years. Wow. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's incredible. 
It, it's amazing. No, I, I'm quite sure that nobody had any idea because, you know, I was just some goofy kid, you know, off the street basically, and it just it just worked out that way. I I, I can't explain it. It's just it's, what can I say? It, it worked out, you know, great, and I'm honored, and that's just fantastic. Lovely. It's such a great moment. It's it's like peak Martha there. She just kind of she just goes full incandescent for you for yeah. just a second there, and then she comes back to the interview. Yeah, yeah, she's fun. I know a little bit of how you felt there because um, when we had Katrina do trivia with us, and I asked her a question about why she always played a Telecaster, and she's like, "That's a really good question. No one's ever asked me that before." And I'm like, <laughs> "Yes." <laughs> It's a great moment in any interview when you when you really stun someone with a question. I would wish I could reveal the secret to that other than it's just it's really just plain blind luck. Take what we can get. Yeah. Okay. Brad chose this one for some reason. This is not uh, an interview I have any memory of. So Brad, talk about this for a second. I kind of insisted actually. I, I didn't just choose it. I like put it back on the list after Steve took it off. In episode 180 in 2009 Steve talked to Stuart Copeland, who you might remember. He was a drummer for a little rock trio called The Police. He was another one of those guys that, like, you can tell his ego is so big. It just, it fills the room. But everybody knows it, and it kind of works out. It's fine. But he tells a story at the top of the interview about playing polo with Prince Charles. Here's how it went. One of my favorite stories, and I was rereading it last night, was... um your encounter at the polo grounds with Prince Charles. Ah, uh, yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I got to be the most patriotic American on the planet on 4th of July. I got to aggress directly upon British royalty. <laughs> and, you know, when you hear a, you know, royalty saying, Oh, bloody buggering f***ing hell. <laughs> it has a certain zing to it. And, and he hits your car. He hits your Range Rover. No, well, uh, he did. As a matter of fact, I wasn't driving the car at the time. It was my engineer, Jeff Seitz, who was driving. And um, yeah, about an hour later, I was I was denting him. <laughs> well, that's fair business. Yeah, it was my job. In fact, he plays um, number four position, and I play number one position. So he's my he was specifically him. He was my opposite number, and it was my job to shut him down. <clears throat> which usually I was real good at because I had great horses, but he's got even better horses than I could ever have. So you didn't hold back with him? Not at all. Oh, <laughs> In fact, I was being protected by Secret Service agents as I'm uh, foiling his every move. There am I, you know, getting my elbow in the royal ribs. <laughs> did you guys have any words afterwards? I mean, did, did you? Yeah, he, he, he got the gag of uh, it was my American duty to beat him up that day. That's another one that I had a good time going back and listening to the whole thing, uh, but uh, that's the most memorable pull from it, I think. He wrote a book. That's why we had the chance to talk to him, and that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. <laughs> We're down to the last three, and I, I'm sure people think they know two of them, and you're probably right, but the number 13 one is the most unexpected one, and it's also one of the most recent ones. Earlier... This um, summer, the 80s crews invited me to host a Facebook live chat with John Parr. And I'd never done that before. And I didn't know what to expect. I don't think John knew what to expect. And he came with his guitar. <laughs> 
And I said, oh, he's got a guitar. Is he, is he going to sing? My contact at the 80s crew said, yeah, you know, if you want him to sing a couple songs, he will. I'm like, what? <laughs> That'll be a first. Oh, my gosh. So he and I talked for an hour. <laughs> it was easily, easily one of the most amazing hours of my life. I mean, I think you can still watch the video for it where you see both of us. He was... Yeah, he was so engaged and so happy to chat with you and really, you know, again, really present with his answers. Yeah. He- this is a moment for an audio, for an audio medium that I'm going to tell you. If you, if you have a Facebook account and probably most of you do, go and watch this because you need to see Steve's face when John Parr sings to him. I would love to to end our to end our chat with, and everyone's asking me to ask you to do it, so I, I will plead. We would love to hear uh, Saint Elmo's Fire. Saint Elmo's Fire. Okay. <laughs> well, when you're listening to this again, uh, because it's on the acoustic, imagine the guy in the chair. He's gone across the deserts. He's gone across mountains. This is uh, for Rick Hansen and for everybody out there in Cruise Land. And uh, I'm dying for this uh, cruise. It's going to be fantastic. We'll have a ball. Let's do Saint Elmo's. John played three songs and he he played this one last and yeah I sort of lost it. <laughs> I started I teared up a little bit and we all did with you Steve. We all did with oh. you. It was a really it was a really touching moment. He wrote me an email after it. It's hanging on my wall. Let me let me pull it down and, t- and read you oh. what he wrote. Hang on. 
But a day afterwards, he wrote me a letter and he said, um, Dear Steve. Never contact um, me again. (laughs) (laughs) The restraining order still applies. Dear Steve, I just want to say a personal thank you for having me on your show and making it a very memorable hour for me. It truly was a highlight for me, and many people have told me it was made by your humanity and genuine love of music. My very best, John. Oh. So, hence this one. We're going to take a break now. (laughs) We'll be right back after we get some tissue. And we're back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. My fiance did the nicest thing when, when that was over. She captured some some uh, video captures of the interview, and she framed them along with the the email, which hangs Aww. right above the computer I podcast with. So Aww. it's very thoughtful. Okay, two thousand nine. Here we go. We can make it. We can make it through this podcast, people. I swear to God. We're so close. We can do it together. Doable. We just got to stick together. Stick together. We're on hour five, but we're going to make it. Uh, in 2009, we did a show about breaking up in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and it was sort of infamous. My idea was nobody really wants to listen to a bunch of mopey stories and songs. Wouldn't it be fun to get someone on the show who has some sort of perspective on these great moments in cinema history of people breaking up on movies. And so I reached out to Debbie Foreman from Valley Girl. And she wrote back, I think, that same day or the next day. Nice. Or she called me. I can't, I can't remember the story. It's been so long. I, I say this all the time. When, when I tell these stories, I, it's like I download them into the podcast and then I take them out of my brain. And so I don't remember them quite as well. Plus, this was 11 years ago. It's an offline story. But, but Debbie was on the show. It was a very, very, very unexpected interview. And it began um, a friendship between me and her that continues till today. And one of the questions we had for her was, we had heard rumors that her and Nicolas Cage were romantically involved during the filming of Valley Girl. And she confirmed it. And she didn't want to talk a ton about it. But she talked a little bit. And it went a little bit like this. What was your first uh, impression when you met Nick Cage? I loved his eyes. I thought he had great energy. I didn't. I, I thought he was uh, scary to me. And why I say that is, I'm, emotionally, I was feeling stuff inside, and so I he was triggering stuff in me that I had had never experienced in my life. I didn't even have a boyfriend prior to that movie, so. Um, that's my memory of him, even when I had the audition with him and even when I worked with him. There was those kind of like, oh, like this thing inside you that you can't control, those, those sort of butterfly feelings, and you keep just squashing them down, thinking, uh, we're professionals, we're working. <laughs> it's the movie. It's not real. There's, there's, a, there's a chemistry that's between you guys in this movie, and, and I think I saw it for the first time when I was um, you know, 15 or 16 years old. And so it made a big impression on me. And I don't think at that point in time I'd ever seen a movie that I could relate to the characters and the chemistry and the story. I think I think for people who were my age at that time, there's something about Valley Girl that um, will always hold us a spot, you know, in our in our hearts. It's and I don't know if it's the chemistry because you two really have it. 
I, you know, I, I still haven't been able to figure any of that out. I know that when we were working, there was an undeniable energy between the two of us that was sort of, we just fed off each other, and um, I allowed it to happen, too. I think that in real life, we're very cautious. We put our guards up. We're very cautious of what we say and what we do around the people that we really like, and that environment allowed me to not have any of those walls and any of those boundaries because now I had text to deal with, um, to the script that just lent itself to it, and I just allowed myself to be taken on that journey. Um, it was a very liberating as an actress because I, I think I, in real life I had never experienced any of those things because I was that way. I was so cautious and put my walls up and very boundaries and, oh, what do you mean by that? You know, all this, all this stuff that, you know, guys and girls go through. In, even at our age, we're still going through that, you know. <laughs> oh, I emailed him. Oh, no. When is he going <laughs> to email me back? <laughs> at 46, I'm still thinking that. So, you know, that, those environments just let, lent itself to the beauty of falling in love for the first time or even your tenth time in life. It just allowed that to happen. So, you know, maybe that was it. We both were, I think I can speak only on, in that respect in terms of Nick, that he allowed it to happen as well. I don't even know what to say to that. It's just, oh, man. She was great. She's been on the show twice maybe three times now over the years she was um a good friend when i needed one and her stories about valley girl are just oh they're <laughs> they're amazing yeah she remembers it like it was yesterday so a lot of people when they talk about favorite interview of the show they talk about deborah foreman but when people ask me what my favorite interview in the show was i i always give the same answer and it's interview number 15 from 2011 no surprise here. It's me talking to former Journey frontman Steve Perry in a conversation that went for probably about four times longer than his publicist wanted it to go. We covered lots of things like his history with the band, his solo career, his romantic relationship with Sherry Swafford. And then we got to the subject of his new music and the pressure he was putting on himself to record new music, which at that point was still a long ways off. Yeah. This was the moment that he and I had together. I get the impression sometimes, and maybe I'm being presumptuous here, that you don't understand how much your fans kind of adore you and want you to be happy. And I think that if if you knew that, but you would, I think you could take some of the pressure off of your fear of sucking i just uh, you know steve god i wish that was true I, I wish i could embrace that as true i'm slowly starting to see that um that's possible uh, but if i could tell my fans anything right now it would be that i want them to know i am happy uh i was happy being in front of them Every night, they lifted me to places I could not go without them. My voice was actually their voice because I had to go get it because they wanted to hear it. I can't get that without them. I've tried to sing like that here in my living room with my Pro Tool rig. What's missing is the quotient 
that they want me to do things that I can't find until I'm standing in front of them to go get it for them. And so they don't even know how much of a part of my life they were. They think I'm, I was a part of theirs, but they'll never know how 50-50 it really was. They need to know that. They need to know that. Without them, I was not who I am. But at the same time, I just want them to know that for the years that I have not been around, it was, it was a difficult come down in the beginning, to be perfectly honest. It was like coming off the Earth's orbit and coming back through the atmosphere and, you know, burning some heat tiles off your face on the way in, you know? Because yeah. I had to come down, I had to just not be in that focus in front of everybody and my feet hit the ground and uh and now i'm okay i'm i love my life and and i'm and i'm so pleased that everybody still loves the music and um and i did let it go completely i think i had to really let it go completely steve with the idea that i was never going to go back to it and three years ago i started writing trying to find it and, and that's what's been going on since then. And a couple of times I've touched it. And it's given me a lift that I forgot about. That I thought I didn't need anymore. And all of a sudden, um, it's emotionally uh, pulled me through some hard times. So now I know what fans have been telling me. just want you to be happy steve yeah steve people just want you to be happy i am happy and i think he is too steve nation should be happy um, with that yeah that will always be a special moment to me we mentioned before that we weren't with the podcast network anymore that was our choice we decided that we wanted to try something different and so starting now today this week we don't currently have sponsors on the show and i'm not saying we never will but if we do they're going to be ones that we pick yeah because we think that we have a connection to them and that they'll have a connection to you so it's okay if you don't want to bet on the nathan's hot dog eating contest on bet online (laughs) and you can probably find boner pills yourself (laughs) yeah but what we are going to start is a patreon program and and i'm sure probably most people out there have had some sort of experience with patreon patreon is like a it's just a program that allows you if you if you feel like you want to make a donation you can and it doesn't have to be a specific amount and it's not a binding legal agreement. No, it's just a directed donation. Yeah. It'll just help us pay for the cost of the show. As we get a little bit more comfortable with it, we'll start to add some tiers to it where like, oh, you make a certain size donation, we'll send you a special shirt or a a Zoom hangout invitation or um Brad will come and do your brisk and uh, of your child. Oh yeah, I have a sharp stuff knife. like that. Can't use your brisket knife. Just so you, just so you're clear. Oh no, I, on the terms. I just use the Leatherman. I keep it pretty sharp. Okay, so we'll have information for you that on the next show. If you go to our website too at sit80s.com, you might know it got a facelift last week. It doesn't look like it's straight out of the eight, of the late or early '90s anymore. It looks a little bit more contemporary. <laughs> I'd like to think anyway. Well, you know. That all is is there waiting for you. We hope that the next few years of Stuck in 80s is a, 
a better time for all of us than we've had in 2020. We thank you for, for listening to 15 years. Um, there's so many great moments that we've had over 15 years and that Brad have, and I have had over the last, what's it been now? Eight years now that you've been on the show? Yeah, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Every show is unique and different and we have interesting thoughts and feelings that we share after we finish each one. And <laughs> sometimes we kick ourselves and sometimes we slap each other on the back. Some of them are, I hate you. I never want to talk to you again. <laughs> But we, we still really enjoy doing it, and I hope you still enjoy listening to it. In the meantime, here we are. We're at, we're at the end of another birthday, another milestone, uh, another moment in time, as we sometimes like to call it. For those of you who have listened to the show since we first started, on July 22nd, which is the day that we're recording this show, not the day you're listening to it, but we did record it on our actual anniversary back in uh, 2005. Brad and I can't thank you enough for 560 episodes and then some, counting the ones that we recorded and then decided to... T- away <laughs> uh sometimes you swing and you miss it's not all a material but for you know 500 some episodes you've been our inspiration the reason we wake up each day sometimes a shoulder to cry on sometimes where the shoulder you've cried on you've always been you will remain our friends our 80s family for those of you who've only recently discovered the podcast welcome we, we invite you to go back and listen to these 15 interviews in their entirety we'll list the links to them on our show notes on sit80s.com or write to us, ask us for show suggestions. We'll, we'll send you some of our favorites that maybe not have been interview shows. But we continue to invite you all, share your stories with us, share your memories. Let's enjoy this ride together for as long as it lasts. In the meantime, the road for Brad and I continues ahead because we remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. What will I do? If you say we're through, I need you to stay, honey, don't let it end this way. Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music, and thanks for listening. There'll be no outtakes this show. It'll be crystal clear. One take. Goodbye.